Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right. We brought you the best sports media app. Now we're bringing you the best sports book and casino. Now live in Ontario. The Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sportsbook experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Ontario only. Must be 19 years of age or older to participate. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. Greetings! Happy NBA postseason. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. So... I'm going to get right into it. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. No, well, no, 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 no not, preamble. No, we, we're going to have a bit of chit chat, but it's not like we can get into the actual series later as part of our, what are we doing here? Four series today. Kind of like the four that interest us the most so far. Maybe we'll do the other four on Friday, but anyway, I'm not getting necessarily right into the nitty gritty of like matchups and all that, but I did just want to mention off the top because now I can't even remember if it was on Trill's pod when we did the Sixers uh, Raptors preview or if it was on will lose the Raptors show when we did the Sixers Raptors preview with him. But on one of those... Or if it was on I, our own podcast where we previewed <laughs> Sixers Raptors. Yes. But on one of those... And I don't think it was our own. On one of those, I did make the joke when I was ragging on Tobias Harris that if the last two playoffs are any indication, me like like making him the guy that I ragged on the most going into the playoffs would mean he was due for uh, some sort of like offensive explosion or the best postseason of his life and it is early yet it has only been two games Tobias has had good starts to playoffs before and trailed off but I will say it's looking like it might be three years in a row with a guy I go into the playoffs trolling the most in like our pre well either our postseason preview or someone else's ends up uh turning it around so Philadelphia you're welcome yeah we'll we'll definitely get into that and we will definitely talk about Tobias in our Raptors Sixers breakdown. I mean, I guess, do, do you want to just start there? I'll give the, the listeners a sort of rundown of how we're going to do this today because we have made a pact, Cash and I, that because things just tend to come pretty fast and furious in the playoffs, and we are doing two episodes a week and trying to keep up with everything without anything going stale before a new batch of games gets played, and changes the tenor and the tone of every series and every conversation and every tactical discussion, we are going to try and keep these shorter, like 45 minutes or less. So rather than do the thing that I feel like we usually do, which is try and hit on every single series that is going on at any given time, we're going to narrow our focus a little bit. So we're going to talk about half the series this time, try and give them about 10 minutes each. And like you said, I think we'll hit on the other four on Friday. So Let's kick off. I'll, yeah. I'll I'm just gonna. I'm in. just gonna straight up hop off this stream if it hits forty five zero zero and you're and you're still talking. So you could handle everything else. The fan shout outs, the goodbyes, whatever. Or or we just quit mid sentence. You <laughs> yeah. know, like at, at forty five minutes, it's a hard out because that's the only way that we're actually gonna be able to hold each other to this. Because uh, look, once the once the snowball gets rolling, yeah, it is hard to stop. But basically, we came here. We each picked two series that have interested us so far. And it doesn't mean 
honestly, I think all the series have been interesting in their own ways. Uh, I would say this isn't like a, a qualitative assessment necessarily. It's more just, I think, the ones that we've been the most locked in on for one reason or another, whether it's because they fascinated us from the jump or because we've made a point of writing about them. And those are the ones that we can speak to with the most context, I guess, as we look ahead to the rest of the series. So I'm going to pitch it over to you to start uh, with the series that has caught your eye or interested you the most after most of these actually have played two games. Uh, I think is Celtics Nets the only one that's only one game deep or I guess Bucks Bulls as well. But yeah, those, those, two, those two. Yeah. I'm going to throw you a bit of a curveball uh, and say that the series I want to talk about most right now, because it's the freshest on my mind as well, is one that we actually didn't foresee being one of the more fascinating series. And that is the matchup of the one seed in the, uh, well, after playing eight seed, I guess before that they were the nine seed in the West New Orleans Pelicans, a, a, a matchup that has what? 30 wins. I, you know, the standings aren't in front of me right now, but you know, we talked about in the East, so there was only like a 10 game gap between first and 10th. Well, yeah. in the West first and ninth and the de facto eighth is like 30 ish games. So a uh, huge mismatch on paper theory, like any way you slice it. The reason I am now fascinated with, it, of course, not just that the Pelicans won game two and are now going back to New Orleans with a series split, but the fact that Devin Booker sustained a hamstring injury in the third quarter of that game and missed the rest of the game, and we don't yet know his status for game three or the rest of the series. I think it was last season he had a hamstring injury that kept him out two weeks. Obviously, hamstrings in general, very finicky injury, like um, muscle group and very finicky injuries when that muscle group gets injured. And, you know, we've seen guys miss a couple games with hamstring injuries. We've seen guys have hamstring injuries that linger for weeks or months. So I really don't think anyone but trained doctors or whatever should be commenting on how long they think he'll be out until we hear something from the sun. So with all that out of the way, we just don't really know. Like, I, I don't know, maybe Devin Booker's playing in two or four nights and, and maybe he's not playing the rest of the post. Like it, it's really that up in the air to me right now. So I, I think there's a lot we can discuss again, both in terms of last night's game, but also with this kind of specter of, of Devin Booker, maybe not playing again in the series, hanging over it like a dark cloud. In terms of last night, look, I know we were talking off air via text. You made the 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 good point that yeah, a lot of last night was the Pelicans um, shooting the absolute lights out at a rate that they probably will not shoot again in this series. Um, I do think Brandon Ingram deserves a ton of credit. I thought uh, it it was a masterclass from him down the stretch. I thought he handled it as he has pretty much all year, and as he has the last couple years, as he just continues to grow into this player that he is like just with such poise. He's got this real like poise and calmness about him. And and I thought it was a masterclass from him. I thought Willie Green had a really good coaching game. I thought just everything was on point and I should remind people that it was 77-74 Pelicans at the time Devin Booker went out. So this was not a case where like they were being completely overmatched and, and then won because Devin Booker got hurt. They were very much in this game. They were leading. They deserved a chance to win it in the end. Unfortunately, it was a star injury had to do, to do with it. But the one thing that I think is interesting is like where we go from here and why I think this is now a series. And I know again, when we were talking off air and you were mentioning that you just couldn't see the Pelicans getting this hot again and therefore could see it, like couldn't really see this thing as like more than six games, even without Booker. I get what you're saying, but at the same time, 
yes, they they won last night's game by whatever it was, a possession, a couple possessions, even though they shot as well as they did, something you pointed out. But that game also included Devin Booker going off for 31 points in the first half. Like, if you were to take Devin Booker out of last night's game and the Pelicans shot the way they did, I don't think we would have been sitting there after saying, well, they shot that well and only won by however many points. Like, I do think you have to also consider what Devin Booker's impact on that game was if we're now going to say he wouldn't be there after this. And I just, I still think the Suns are the better team, but this is now a best of five. The Pelicans technically have home court. And I also, as I was saying to you last night, like I think there's something to the fact of, I guess not just in the playoffs, but the playoffs is when it's magnified because you're playing the same team over and over again. Like every loss in the playoffs, like, you know, every kind of game that a top a, a higher seed or the favorite th- lets get away throws away gets bit by a bad luck whatever it is every loss in the playoffs obviously shrinks your margin for error but it also reduces the chances that like what should happen will happen you know and so it's like if the pelicans just can just go home and get a split at home which i don't think is asking that much in the event booker isn't playing now you go back to phoenix and like all of a sudden you're in a best of three and maybe booker's not there and i just think like the more that margin for error the more that um sample size gets reduced to the point where what should happen might not happen and you leave yourself to susceptible to being undone by just random shit happening because it's smaller sample size like and booker's out like i i do think there's a path here where this could get pretty scary for the suns I, I don't think you agree, and I'd like to hear why. Like, I'd like to hear why, even without Booker, you just think, okay, like, the shooting was unsustainable, and therefore this team still can't push this thing really past six. Yeah, look, I, I think the Pelicans deserve a ton of credit, A, for the way they turned their season around. And, and to be clear, the quality of this team is not reflected in its record. Obviously, right. the, the deadline moves that they made to get not just McCollum, but also Larry Nance, who's become a really important part of their rotation. Jose Alvarado becoming a more prominent part of the rotation and really showing out. Uh, Trey Murphy as well, man. I mean, the, the production that they've gotten from three rookies, you know, playing big, important playoff minutes is awesome. Like, I, I, I'm a big fan of this team. I've been high on them all year, at least, you know, like relative to their standing as a a mid-tier Western Conference team. I've enjoyed watching them and I'm high on what they can be when Zion comes back. But they're not winning this series, man. I'm sorry. Like they shot the lights out that game. Ingram is incredible and he is a difficult shot maker, but even still like the shot diet that he is getting, it's just not sustainable. If you're talking about, yes, Devin Booker obviously is potentially not going to be there, even then, like the, the Suns have survived injuries for a lot of this season because they have the infrastructure to do it because they are very precise. They run their stuff. They're incredibly well coached and well prepared for every game. They defend their tails off. This was actually like one of the poorer defensive games that I, I, I've seen them play, like just some uncharacteristic breakdowns from them. But it's still a lot of it just came down to shot making from New Orleans. And I'm thinking about it and asking myself, which of these teams do I have more faith in being able to score on the other? And maybe there's another game in this series where the Pelicans get comparably hot from three point range and they could win another one for sure. Like I wouldn't be at all surprised if this is going back to Phoenix to all, but for the Pelicans to actually win, I, I just don't see them having much hope of scoring on this son's defense to the same extent that the Suns are going to be able to score on them. And that's me, like, I think the, the Pelicans defense has actually been, like, pretty good this season. And I think the option to downsize and go with Nance at center 
is an interesting ace up their sleeves. Uh, even though, like, I feel like Chris Paul kind of cooked Nance on switches toward the tail end of that game one, but it, sometimes Chris Paul is going to go off and there's literally nothing right. you can do about it. Yeah. Um, Jackson but, Hayes gave him some really good minutes in game two as well. Hayes has been good. And when they played him at center, like, he's been effective on switches. I think the, it, playing him at, at the four is not tenable for them in this series like i just think that that congests their offense too much and the suns especially with how dialed in they are are going to make it really difficult and really shrink the floor and make it hard for the pelicans to score in those alignments i I just think it's still a pretty big mismatch even with devin booker out and it it could be 2-2 going back to phoenix and i still wouldn't really be be sweating it from the sun's perspective and like you know, as I texted you, as we were having this conversation off air, Chris Paul's been in a lot of adverse situations in his career, and this is not one of them. I just, uh, I- I'm looking forward to seeing what the Pelicans can be next year, hopefully with the healthy Zion in the mix. But th- this is gravy for them, which is which is great. But as far as actually winning the series, I don't see it happening. One thing I love, and I guess coaches probably hate, is that the postseason has a tenant because so much of the playoffs, especially on a team level, um, I feel is like more so about teams having their weaknesses exposed than necessarily their strengths coming through, unless you end up being the champion. And even then your, your weaknesses are exposed on route to that title. And I think it's the same with coaches where like, especially the deeper you get in the postseason, usually, you know, some of the better coaches in the league are there left standing in the end, but you also go through a playoff run and, you know, the longer you last, you have the Monday morning quarterback the next day and at night. Like, I, you, they just get exposed. And I think it's interesting that even coaches, we like, for example, Monty Williams, we're both um, unanimous coach of the year in our Pound the Rock uh, awards. And I think he's done a tremendous job the last two years. Obviously, I think he's a good coach. But even him, you know, you go through a play where like, you're going to have moments where I end up thinking, like, what the hell are you doing? And one of those moments for Monty Williams came last night in the third quarter where that all bench lineup was was in trouble and he left them out there pretty long. And I'm not going to say that was the game. Again, there was obviously much more that went into it, but I mean, that was part of the game. (laughs) That was part of them losing that game was how much that all bench lineup was just like bleeding points. And he left them out there. And I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting thing where it was like an example of a, obviously it's tough to be a coach in any professional sport, but also even the good ones. um, Like, even if you're sitting there thinking the coach of your favorite team, or there's a coach you like to rag on, like sucks the most. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a reminder that even the good ones have moments or decisions or whatever the case or some that are just inexplicable and and yeah they sometimes contribute to losses and that's just kind of how it goes like no there are no coaches perfect yeah the Suns bench hasn't been great these first couple of games which is surprising because it was really good during the regular season but I think in general it just brings back a point that I've made in the past that bears repeating which is that to me NBA benches are like the relief pitching of basketball in that I don't subscribe to the notion that like depth isn't important and benches don't matter in the playoffs. They do. I just don't think there's a lot of consistency or carryover from regular season to playoffs in terms of which benches are actually effective. I just think when you're talking about role players, there's always a lot of variance there and they're role players for a reason. It's just like relief pitchers are relief pitchers for a reason, right? Like they they don't have that consistency. And so trying to guess like which bench is actually going to be effective in the playoffs is a fool's errand to me in a lot of ways, unless you're dealing with like, you know, early warriors era, Andre Iguodala or something like that. Um, 
but I do think, I think Phoenix, I do that said, I do think Phoenix's bench will be better moving forward yes. in the series. Um, I mean, I guess we, we have hit our timeline for this series, so I guess we're going to move on. But I do want to make one more point, and it was just that if you remember around the deadline when the when the Pelicans traded for CJ McCollum, this is kind of what I meant when I um, – if you remember, I kind of went on a, a bit of a rant at the time about how like – Yeah, they owe it to Ingram. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, because like everyone – and I get it, obviously. I'm the same way. I've made videos, but like everyone when it comes to the Pelicans is obviously laser-focused in on like Zion's health. Uh, whether or not he's committed or wants to even be there long-term, despite the fact he's on his rookie contract, how the, they built it, whether the team they built is even like optimally built to support Zion. But I think what was lost in all that is like, here was this guy um, that, you know, a couple years ago was the most improved player, like has turned himself into a really good player and is a still young, what is he, 23, 24 star in this league that continues to get better, that has committed his future to the team, the organization, the city. And I, I said at the time, and I love it even more now that they are, you know, in a 1-1 series with the top-seeded Suns. Like, I like the fact that New Orleans rewarded him in a way and, like, gave him, yes, is, could CJ and will CJ help, obviously, when Zion eventually comes back or next season? Of course, this isn't a, a rental. But it also helped Brandon Ingram play more meaningful games this year. It rewarded the play that he has had and, and the commitment he's made to the team. And I thought that was big. Like, I... I kind of saw it as like, don't forget about Brandon Ingram. And there's something too rewarding the guy that is here and is playing the games and is committed to the future. And so I'm, you know, I'm happy for the way CJ played there and for the team and the fans there, but I'm also really happy for Brandon Ingram that he got this opportunity and is now, you know, doing what he's doing because he deserved it. You know, the, the fact that his team was not good or the fact that his best teammate and the teammate he's supposed to be second fiddle to going forward has been hurt the whole time. Isn't his fault. And so, that's the last thing I want to say about the series. Like, I'm happy he got that opportunity. Yeah, CJ has been balling too, man. Yeah. Uh, let's move on here. We got we got to talk Celtics Nets because that to me was, I, th- I think that game one, which they've only played one game so far. It's funny because like they're playing game two of their series on the same night that the Raptors and Sixers are playing game three, but that has been I think the best game of the playoffs so far, and just like a ton of stuff that we could choose to talk about. Uh, most of which we're not going to be able to get to because we won't be able to keep it to 10 minutes or less if we if yeah. we go down any number of I'll, potential rabbit holes but but let me I'll start. give you the I'll give you the Kyrie double uh, double bird flip if I see this go to if 10 or 1 too long. Yeah. Yeah, do you want to give me like 30 seconds on your take of that? Do you care? Does it matter at all? I mean, look, I, I don't really care. I th- I think it also de- like because I don't know what was said between the fan and like this the fan may have said something that was completely out of pocket and, and you know my stance on that like guaranteed I, the fan said something that was right, out of pocket right that's what I'm saying so like I'm not gonna sit here and say well you can't uh, can't give the finger to fans like would I recommend for players not give the finger to fans yeah but mostly because they should be protecting their own money not because I think the fans are above criticism or retaliation but again I I would expect the, the fan said something out of pocket and deserved some sort of retribution unfortunately there's nothing you can do to them because they are protected by the fact they're fans and by a lot of other things and yeah i'd recommend fan again i'd recommend players don't do it not because i think the fans don't deserve retaliation but because it's just like protect your own uh pocketbook there are better things you can do with that money um other than that i mean i've gone on rants before about the relationship between Kyrie and boston fans i think that it's a special kind of animosity that the, that Celtics fans have for him even if you go back to the fact that they they were hating on him when he wasn't even in the building 
when when the Nets came, you know, to town those first couple times, and then the whole thing was stomping on Lucky. I made a whole video about it for the Just Scores YouTube series. That the reaction in general from Celtics fan has been pathetic because it doesn't seem like standard, you know, score and fan behavior. It's been a little different, but anyway, I, I don't really have anything more to add to it other than. I wish Kyrie didn't do it only because I, I like that he did it for our entertainment and the fact we're talking about it, but I also wish he didn't do it because it's, I mean, it's 50 G out of his pocket and no one needs that. Yeah. I mean, whatever those, those fines go to charity, right? Like yeah, the NBA, enough. I don't exactly know how it works or where they funnel that money to, but the, the party line is that that money is going to charity. So ostensibly it's going to go to a good cause and it's not like Kyrie is going to miss it. You know, 50 grand is a drop in the bucket to him. So I'm fine with it. And also it's like philosophically, if we're going to continually just say and act like, oh, well, fan heckling is part of the game, learn to deal with it. Well then yeah, players should be able yeah. to give it back. I have 100%. no issue with that whatsoever, but okay. So here's what I'll say about that game. I think that it made a very compelling case for your pre-series prediction and like the way that you arrived at it in that the Celtics very much looked like the better and more well-rounded team. I thought they played better for the majority of the game. Jason Tatum was the best player on the floor. Unbelievable game at yeah. both ends. Both, yeah. And then it's, it's the fourth quarter and the Nets are up by five. And the, the Celtics defense in that game was incredible. Like I, I would say, at least from what I've seen, that is the best defensive game that has ever been played by a team that gave up a 117 offensive rating. Okay. Yeah. And so that's, I think that really speaks to what you were saying before the series in that, yes, all these things are true. The Celtics are better built. They're more balanced, like offense, defense, all of this stuff. And yet in a game like that, where they, they played like the better team, they almost lost because of the ridiculous shot making of Kyrie Irving. And Kevin Durant did not have a good game shooting the ball. He didn't have a good game at all, frankly. And, and the Celtics played uh, exceptional defense on him. And that's something we can talk about. But even so, I would say KD's shot making gravity, like the attention that he was still drawing to the ball, the, the sheer exhausting challenge of trying to guard him and Kyrie for 48 minutes still put the Celtics in a position where they needed a borderline miracle bucket at the buzzer to pull that game out. So that to me is an interesting case for your prediction. I also think it was a compelling case for the people picking the Celtics like me, because a lot of the stuff that worried me from the Nets perspective very much did come to bear. The, the need to like balance offense and defense to like figure out what lineups work to figure out how they're going to stop the Celtics from like mismatch hunting their smaller and weaker defenders to figure out where the rim protection is going to come from. All that stuff was very much on display. And I still don't entirely know how they solve that, where I think, you know, despite the top end talent edge still arguably belonging to Brooklyn. I mean, if, if Tatum keeps playing this way the rest of the series, I'm not sure about that, but I just feel like the Celtics have more answers or more potential avenues to answers for what the Nets are going to try to do to them than vice versa. And, you know, even if the Nets had won this game, I feel like I would have come away feeling that. Like I, I weirdly felt down the stretch of that game that 
it was a game the Nets had to have more than Boston had to have it. Even on the road, really? The the road home thing maybe tilts it, but I just think I was like, oh, wow, that, that was right there for Brooklyn and they lost it. And now, now I'm just not sure. I mean, Kyrie and KD or Kyrie and KD, so maybe not. And K- I mean, the same way you were kind of saying with like the Pell Suns, like there's no way the Pels um, shoot like that again. Uh, I, on the flip side, there's probably no way KD shoots like that again, right? Like they, yeah. But I, listen, Tatum, Tatum, and the Celtics in is general, Goran Dragic, is, is Goran Dragic going to do that again? You oh, know, fair enough, fair enough. But I, I still think that the Celtics played pretty close to a perfect game, or as well as you can play against the Nets. And to your point, it was a game down the stretch, and that was with KD not being anything close to KD. I just think, yeah, like I, I, I don't have much to add other than what you said off the top where when you were talking about like how it lends itself to my argument, I'm not even saying, well, now I'm convinced the Nets are going to win. Like they're still, they're down in the series. And as I've said the whole time, the Celtics are the better, more well-rounded team. Mm-hmm. And you know what's interesting? I almost think that like if this same matchup happens in the second or third round when maybe like the Nets have already had to go through a round or two of K- of having to rely on KD and Kyrie so much, and they've already had to go through a round or two, a round or two of like kind of throwing shit against the wall and hoping it sticks when it comes to like cobbling together lineups where they can defend. And like I would almost lean towards Boston the later it is in the playoffs because I'd see it as like okay, like at some point this is gonna catch up to them, or at some point the minutes or the load is gonna catch up to KD and Kyrie, and they're gonna run out of answers, and now they've run into a good team. I think part of me thinking the Nets would figure it out and with those two guys at the top, it would carry them through. It's almost because it's also the first round of the playoffs. And I just thought, like, at least right now they can do this, even against a great team like Boston. If they're just in, if they're, def- like I said in, in the write-up we did going into the playoffs, if they just defend, like, they don't have to defend well. If they defend at, like, a borderline, like, a baseline average NBA team in this series. They're going to have a chance to win every game because you have Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving on the court. They kind of did that in game. I I don't know if they can do that for all series. I don't think they can do that for a whole playoff run, but I'm a little, I'm more convinced they can do that for four to seven games. Now it would have to be five to seven games. We'll see. But I still think like they, they they find a way to win game two, go back home one, one with, you know, despite what game one looked like. And I give all the credit in the world to Tatum with, going into game three tied one one with what i still think will be the best player in the series in kd i'd still give them a a good chance here by the way can i just like throw one aside and i I don't want to throw us off track because we're not talking about that series today but we are talking about like shooting sustainability and i just have to say because i'm genuinely like laughing about it the last three days the demar Derozan uh game one stinker look i i wrote earlier this year about why i think his more refined game makes him more um, you know, immune to playoff struggles. I still believe that. I, I think he, he had a terrible shooting performance, but I think he should be better. But I have to say the funniest thing in the world to me is him coming out and saying, no way in hell I shoot six of 25 again. So DeMar shot 24% in game one, okay? His last, if you know, whether you want to go postseason or play in whatever, his last some sort of post-regular season basketball, which was last year's playing, he shot five of 21 which is 23.8%. And I tweeted this too, but it is just like hilarious. I don't care if you like DeMar or don't like him. You have to acknowledge how hilarious it is that this essentially turned into like, no way in hell I shoot 24% again in a playoff game, says man who shot 23.8% in his last taste of post-regular season basketball. Anyway, we're talking about shooting sustainability. I had to get out there. I've been laughing about it for three days. I like DeMar, but 
you can't. You're telling me Demar's shooting from that game one is sustainable. <laughs> I'm unfortunately am, even though I think he's a much better player. Um, okay, let me let me kick this back to you though, and, and get us back on track uh, for the Celtics Nets series. What's tactically? What's the the single most interesting thing to you that you saw in that game one, or that you are looking for for tonight's game two and, and the rest of the series? Is it? I mean, this is kind of a cop. Well, I guess it doesn't apply to tonight. It's kind of a cop out, but. It does sound like Ben Simmons is going to be there for one of the games in Brooklyn. I'm fascinated to see what the lineup looks like with Simmons. In, like bringing Simmons into the lineup if he starts, maybe he maybe they'll bring him off the bench. I don't know, but if if say he were to start, I'm fascinated by how they go with the rest of the lineup because obviously you're injecting a crazy amount of defensive ability in there that they're not used to in that lineup. And I just wonder what the trade off is in terms of like how does that affect the rest of the lineup? Kyrie is obviously their you know, nominal point guard or offensive initiator, the ball's going to be in Katie's hand. So does Simmons just play a power forward role? I know of a role that you um, often wanted to see him play, except it wouldn't be like a point forward on that team. Like I, I'm fascinated by what the lineup looks like if and when Simmons gets back, both in terms of how they utilize him and also what the rest of the lineup looks like now that they have a bit of defense offense trade-off to actually work with, which they didn't before. Like, could you, could you go Kyrie... Bruce Brown, KD, Ben Simmons, Nick Claxton. That's three non-shooters on the exactly. Floor so then, do you bring in Seth? This yeah, like you, I, right. So I, I don't so think start, I don't think that's a lineup that can work. No, okay. So that, that's what I'm saying. So you end up with Kyrie, Seth, uh, KD, Ben Simmons, and Claxton. Or you just don't like you don't play a center. I mean, I think Fair historically enough. Simmons as a five has not gone particularly well, but I think next to KD that is potentially enough size in the front court to make it work where you know sole backline rim protecting duties aren't on Simmons' shoulders cuz that's not really who he is like he yeah he's 6'10 but he's more of a perimeter defender than an interior defender so this is an issue the Nets have and to your point maybe Ben Simmons can help solve it because they spent pretty much the entirety of game 1 with either KD or Nick Claxton guarding Tatum on the perimeter. Yeah. And when that's happening, there's just no rim protection behind them. And especially with Claxton, like, first of all, they're switching Claxton onto Tatum a lot. And there were some possessions where Claxton was just the primary on Tatum. And Tatum's just going by him without too much difficulty. And then there's no rim protection. Like, he's just scoring easily on those drives. And that's an issue. Like they have to figure out how to solve that. And maybe Simmons is the answer. You know, maybe he is immediately back to being Simmons and he can guard Tatum credibly while one of KD or Claxton or both of them play on the back line. You know, I think it could get a bit tough offensively with Claxton and Simmons out there together. But if the other three guys on the court are KD, Kyrie, and Seth Curry, the Nets are probably going to be fine. Uh, in the meantime, though, I think they could maybe like take notes from the Celtics who have been, you know, maybe the most switch happy team in the league this season, but I think took a much more selective approach to switching in that game one where like they're not switching Daniel Tice onto either KD or Kyrie, right? Oftentimes they're playing drop in that scenario, which is dangerous against those guys, obviously. Of course. But I think for the most part, their guys were doing a good job on ball fighting over top. Kyrie definitely burned the drop a few times, but KD less so. And then with Horford, they were switching Horford a bit, but 
mostly he was hedging those ball screens as a way to both stay out of the switch and to apply ball pressure and take away the pull-up options. So like the Celtics had a few guys they were clearly comfortable with as KD's primaries, you know, mainly Tatum, Jalen Brown, uh, and Grant Williams. And when they were switching anyone else onto him, first of all, they don't soft switch. Like it's an aggressive physical jump switch where they're getting into the ball. Like they're making you feel them on those switches and they're doing that on and off the ball with KD, by the way, right? Like when he's coming off of off ball screens, guys are jumping out at him, trying to impede his path. So for me, like the, the big tactical thing, and it's kind of like two things that are connected is like that, that Celtics defensive game plan against KD and does the Nets adjustment to help free him up more necessitate them sacrificing some defense for offense because the Celtics were paying no mind to Bruce Brown. Like they were helping aggressively off him all game. And with him and Claxton on the floor together, it's like, you know, one possession is a perfect example where I can't remember if it was KD or Kyrie running the pick and roll, but the Celtics put two on the ball and Claxton catches it on the roll. And Bruce Brown is in the strong side corner. Marcus Smart is already pulled over and he draws a charge on Claxton before Claxton can even think about like making a move or making a kickout pass. Like having those two on the floor together makes it challenging. It allowed the Celtics to play the kind of defense they played on KD where they were all up in his driving lanes, not letting him get anywhere near the rim. I I just thought they did a really good job on him. And a lot of that came down to First of all, the selective switching, like making sure they had assignments like primaries on him that they could trust. And the other part of it was just all of those swipes, like getting into his dribble and not giving him seams to drive into, not even like to drive to the rim, but even just like to take a hard dribble like to his left to get into like a 16 foot pull up. And so I am very curious to see, does that change how they structure their lineups and if they are changing the structure of those lineups, like can they get stops? You know, Claxton is an interesting figure to me in this series because he is an important defender for them. And he actually had a a pretty good offensive game, all things considered, but his free throw shooting down the stretch became an issue. And I do think having him switch out out onto Tatum didn't work. Like it didn't go well. So they got to find a way, I think, to keep him on the back line. And then it's probably got to be KD guarding Tatum, I guess. But that's a lot to ask of KD, given the load he's carrying on offense and how hard Boston made it for him in that game one. So that's why I'm just like, I, I talking through all this stuff and it's like, man, it's just so much easier for Boston. And like from a game planning perspective, even though the, the two best shot makers in the series are on the Brooklyn side of things, it's still easier from a game planning perspective for Boston because they are so much better balanced. Yeah, I think that just comes with a lot of the things we expected going into the series, again, about this them being the better, more well-rounded, and especially better defense team with just more answers. Like, they do have more answers for the Nets than the Nets have for them, other than solving the top-end talent. But in general, they have more answers and more options to try to come up with answers, you know, to the challenges the Nets present, as opposed to the other way around, where the Nets very much, as I've admitted the whole time, are having to rely on the fact of, well, we've got Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And maybe that works for a round. I don't know. Uh, but, but we'll have to see. Yeah. Okay. 
just really quickly to close this off, ridiculously good Horford game. Like, I cannot yep. believe how good he was. <laughs> Horford has resurrected over the last like, year and a half. The Kemba for Horford offseason trade, absolute masterstroke for Boston. Didn't see it playing out this advantageously for them. The Thunder sitting him as early as they did last year might have might have preserved those legs. Yeah. Also, I think, look, I wouldn't have voted Marcus Smart for Defensive Player of the Year. I thought other guys were more deserving, but I had no issue with him winning. I think it is yeah, cool to see a perimeter player win the award finally after it being dominated by big men uh, since Kawhi won it for the last time, basically. And I actually thought this game was uh, a pretty strong case for him winning that award because he was so yeah. disruptive all over the passing and driving lanes, playing really good individual defense, even though Kyrie shook loose for 39 or whatever. Also, the last possession was just like a really incredible show of like composure and patience from the Celtics to not call timeout. First of all, incredible defensive possession. And then to not call timeout when it looked like Jalen Brown was trapped on the baseline, like the Nets went and doubled him and it looked like he was going to get stuck there. He managed to dribble out of it, find smart on the kick out. And Marcus Smart draws two guys, two two guys closing out on him because they were so convinced that he was going to shoot the ball. Tatum, by the way, also thought he was going to shoot the ball because he said he was going for an offensive rebound on that cut. And uh, that was like, what an incredible way to finish that game. So that's that's also an argument in favor of guys, even if they're not great shooters, just always being willing and, and like ready to shoot the ball anyway, because if the defense thinks that you might shoot it, they still will close out on you. Yeah. And uh, people have railed against Marcus Smart's shot selection for a long time. But uh, that right there was a credit to his lack of conscience. In terms right. of what you need, what you need, and you you do need guys like that. Definitely, it it can burn you, but there are plenty of games and and plenty of times in the playoffs where we've seen plenty of teams fall apart because they don't have guys who are just willing to eat it if they if they miss or to you know take For sure. a quote unquote bad shot. Yeah, yeah I, I wouldn't have had him higher than third, I guess, on my ballot. But I, I like you, I've got no, I, I don't think this is like egregious. I'm not uh, I'm not up in arms on it, and it is cool. Yeah. Um, Okay, see. quickly Small. before we go to break, you still are you still taking Nets and six? Look, I, whether it's six, seven, like I, I don't know, but I, I would still lean Nets. Yeah, I would still take Nets right now. All right, let's take the break. We'll come back and uh, we'll hit on Rap Sixers. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, we both picked the 76ers to beat the Raptors. We picked them to do it in seven games. We thought it was going to be a knockdown, drag out, really competitive series. Obviously, a lot of the win gets taken out of the Raptors' sails when they lose Scotty Barnes in Game 1. They were already getting shellacked in that game, but to, to lose a guy who had been probably their second-best player in that game before he went down, a really impressive playoff debut for him. And it, who knows? It, it seems like it was a pretty bad sprain. I'm not sure we're going to see him again in this series. That obviously changes things. But we've seen this Raptors team beat 
the Sixers, when they were like close to full strength with Fred Van Vliet and OG Ananobi out of the lineup, like they've been able to get it done shorthanded a lot this season. And they just weren't, in, in, they, they just weren't competitive in game two. Uh, they're, they're down to nothing. They're going back home. You, you know, what, what are their chances? Do you think of kind of turning this thing around and extending the series, making it a long series as we expected it to, or like, you know, to you, is this just shaping up as like a gentleman sweep or something like that? Yeah. I mean, look, if things, obviously the way things have looked, I can't see them getting more than one of two at home and, and hopefully not getting swept. Um, I'll touch on a few things and I'll try to make it very quick. Cause if we want to stick to our original commitment, we've only got like 10 minutes ish total here. So I'll, I'll just run off a few things thick and then I'll, I'll hand you the mic because I do, you wrote about it. You wrote a great piece about it and I'll let you kind of cook about that. So in terms of the Barnes thing, obviously I just think he does so much for them that rookies usually don't do in terms of impact that it is really hard to replicate. Nick nurse even made the, the point about it where like it's, it's hard to replace a guy like Scotty, especially in a playoff series on a team that doesn't play a lot of guys anyway, because he does so much, right? Like you need multiple guys now to fill the different roles that he did for this team. Um, two, to your point about, how the Raptors played under man and even how they beat the Sixers under man when the Sixers were at full strength agreed. And look, you know, they are a very resilient team and they have been for a while now, but I will also caution to say those results happened as part of the 82 game sample and not part of the part of, you know, time of the season when you need 16 wins, which as we know, things do change and the best players kind of step up and, and things matter more. Um, And so, I'm not sure how much of that, you know, well, they did it in March can translate to, well, can they do it in late April? Um, three, this is something you've talked about too. I, I think the Raptors misplayed their, their hand defensively when it comes to the way they guarded or have been guarding Harden versus the way they have been guarding or not guarding Maxi. I think Maxi deserves more of the help and secondary coverage than Harden does. And I really would like and would have liked to see them from the beginning just defend Harden for the most part in single coverage. I know there needs to be some, maybe if he gets into the lane, I get that, but like there should not be default secondary defense on Harden at this stage in his career, the way he's looked all year and the way he's looked in this series, by the way, I'm sure you'll mention that. I'll be honest in terms of the Barnes injury, because of how close I thought this series was going to be, I very much could have looked at game one and chalked it up. But like, look, things happen. You know, if, if that loss had been in a game four or game five, it's just a loss within the series. It only seemed worse to be blown out because it was game one. The same way, you know, it always seems worse when you lose on opening night as opposed to a random loss in January. Um, and so I could have come out of that game if the Raps came out of it healthy, thinking I, I would actually pick them to win game two because I think this will be a very back and forth series. With Scotty out, that obviously changed and now everything's changed. So yeah, I don't, you know, I saw this going seven. I'm, I'm not sure about that anymore. The last thing I want to, point to is just obviously the free throws and the disparity and everyone wants to talk about it and look have there been like a few bad absolutely have there been a few calls that I thought that the refs could have put the whistles away absolutely but we've been talking about this not just also but especially when Harden joined the Sixers two guys that are uniquely equipped to draw fouls and get to the free throw line in comparison to a lot of guys in history. These are two of the best guys in history at doing that, okay? And now they're on the same team. It's going to be very hard to guard them without putting them on the line. And it's not because the refs hate the Raptors. It's not because the refs love James Harden and Joel Embiid. It's because that is what, like, the body of work is there. This is not just something that materialized out of thin air and the refs want to give the Sixers an easier path to the second round. Like, these guys, and Embiid especially at this point in his career versus Harden's career, 
These guys are almost impossible to guard without fouling. And the numbers have borne that out forever. Not just this year, not just in this playoff series. To that end, if you look at the highest free throw attempt rate, free throw attempts um, by field goal attempts in the modern era. So you're looking at like the three-point era on because the most of the top teams were like from the 50s. And I'm sorry, we're not counting. If you go like three-point era, some semblance of like modern basketball, the highest free throw attempt rate belonged to the 1997-1998 Utah Jazz at 0.334. So essentially 33.4 free throw attempts per 100 field goal attempts. Well, since Harden joined the Sixers, their free throw attempt rate was 33.9, 0.339. So essentially what I'm saying is this team already got to the free throw line basically better than any team in modern history. This is what was always going to happen for any team playing them. Unfortunately, the Raptors are the team that's playing them. I, does it hurt your chances of making it a long series? Yeah, but you also have to play better and you have to defend better without fouling. Yeah, I mean... Look, I, I, there's nothing that I am less interested in talking about than officiating when we're discussing basketball. I think Joel Embiid is a really difficult player to officiate because of how enormous he is and how strong and fluid he is, which basically, leave, like, you leave a defense almost no option but to be really physical with him. That's the only way to defend him effectively, and that's especially true for a Raptors team that, as we all know, does not roster a player taller than six foot nine. Their defensive game plan against Embiid relies on that physicality, on bumping him and grabbing him and making it difficult for him to get to his spots. And I will say, like to your point about, yes, you know, we should have expected this was going to happen hard and Embiid on the same team. I think we could have expected that the refs were going to swallow their whistles a little bit more in the playoffs than they have in this series sure. so far. Where sure. especially with like the off ball stuff, like some of the bumps, they're, they're just like it's a, it's a pretty quick whistle, and I, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. Like I think they're more or less calling it by the book, but that makes it really difficult for the Raptors if if that's how these games are going to be called because they don't have a lot of recourse against Embiid if they can't be physical with him. I think Embiid deserves a lot of credit for how hard he has run the floor because the way that the Raptors have had success defending him in the past is like they swarm him on the catch. Like when the ball's still in the air, by the time it gets there, there's two or three bodies around him and they're shutting off his passing angles. Like they're making him very uncomfortable and they're also pushing those catches out as far as they can. But him busting it up the floor is like creating cross matches. It's getting him early deep seals. It's making it way more difficult for the Raptors to get set and load up on him. And that is leading to them either like putting him on the free throw line or him just getting easy baskets because he's right under the rim. And that's just like a thing that the like team wide, the Sixers have done really well, which is run the floor, right? Like they have dominated the Raptors in transition, which is like probably the most surprising development of this series. And this is the thing. And this is what I wrote about, like all these advantages that we thought the Raptors had. We're like, we agreed. And this is why we picked the Sixers to win in spite of these Raptors advantages. Like the Sixers have the best player, more top end talent, top to bottom, more talented team overall, probably. And yet, here's how the Raptors can make it a long series, right? They dominate the possession battle. They dominate on the offensive glass. They dominate in transition. And none of that has happened. Sixers in this series have a higher offensive rebound rate than the Raptors, much higher transition frequency than the Raptors, and like a gargantuan advantage in terms of transition scoring efficiency, where they're scoring 
192 points per 100 possessions in transition in this series. And the Raptors are scoring 79. So that's a credit to the Sixers' transition defense. They've done a really good job getting back. And it's a credit to them punishing the Raptors for their offensive glass crashing approach. Where they, they came out in game one. I thought they did a really good job just getting their shell, boxing out not letting the Raptors kind of puncture that shell and get on the offensive glass. And then I think in game two, I just like the Raptors actually did win the offensive rebounding battle in game two after losing it in game one. But I really think it came at a cost. Like if you watch some of some of the no hope gambles they took on the offensive glass, just like reckless crashes where I think typically the Raptors have been pretty calculated and sensible about this. And, And some of these just like smacked of desperation to me. And every time they whiffed, the Sixers were out and running the other way and scoring in transition. Um, Tyrese Maxey, kind of the head of the spear there. But I just think it's funny because we came into this being like the biggest challenge for the Raptors is going to be scoring in the half court. That was the biggest bugaboo for them all season. And going up against the Sixers team with Joel Embiid in the middle is only going to make that more challenging. Well, guess what? The Raptors on their first shot half court possessions are scoring nine points per hundred higher than the Hawks league best mark during the regular season. Like they're killing it in the half court on offense. And it just hasn't mattered because they're getting absolutely shredded on defense. Maxi has carved them up. Like it's, I expected him to have a big series. That's something we talked about, not to this extent. And like the thing that you mentioned about Harden and the attention they're throwing his way is facilitating that. And I I 100% agree with you that I think they need to switch up their priorities, challenge Harden to like be a scorer, prove he can score inside the arc. He's four of 15 from two point range in this series so far. Like, and they're still treating him like prime Harden with the, the attention they're giving him like guys pulling over from the wing to stop him at the nail when he just like, hasn't been threatening as a driver in this series. And all that's doing is opening up that seam for Maxi to attack off the catch. And he's a, gashing them get into the rim hitting like eight of 12 on above the break threes like this is a big thing for philly and their offense is like they're shooting unsustainably well from three they're as a team like 52 percent on above the break threes that's maxi that's tobias harris it's danny green like they're not going to keep shooting this well but i do think there are some adjustments the raptors can make to make it easier on themselves and one of them is just playing hard and more straight up last point i want to make i know you don't like talking about the refs and free throws whatever but i I just want to ask you this what would you guess is Joel Embiid's uh, free throw attempt rate in this series? Uh, something like 80%. It is, yes. It's over 80. So basically like almost a free throw per field goal. Yes. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Whether whether it is... He, he's hard to deal he, with, man. I don't, like, I don't, yeah. He's really yeah. hard to deal with. Yeah. And, and like to the point about the Raptors half-court offense, like they, they have pressure points they can hit, man. Like Siakam and Ananobi both are really cooking in isolation. They're going mismatch hunting. They are feasting on George Niang every time they get that matchup. It can be Tobias Harris also. Like, even it can be Maxi. I think they should attack Maxi more at the defensive end. Like, that's one way that they can make him hurt. And, and Fred, like, even though he completely fell apart toward the end of that game, too, because the Raptors' depth is gutted and he had to play like the first 35 minutes of the game, early on in that game, he was busting the drop with his pull-up shooting, which is like really important to open things up for the Raptors offense. So I'm curious to see where this goes. I fully expect the Raptors to win game three. I just think shooting shooting regression from Philly, bit of a momentum swing. Like 
their first home playoff game in like three years. I, I think they win game three. I think game four is where it's going to be decided, obviously. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, we, we've already lied to the audience about, we've already, Misled. we've already failed the audience with uh, our 45 minute promise, uh, which turned out to we, be. We've failed game. ourselves, really. I think, uh, yeah. do the listeners care that? I mean, they're listening to us, so that they must True. like listening to us, I guess, a True. little bit. So maybe they won't begrudge us going longer than we promised we would. But let's hit Mavs Jazz quickly and get out of here. Okay. I wrote about this uh, after game two. Look, I think. I, I, you know, a commenter wrote actually after in that uh, feature I wrote that it was almost disrespectful to the Mavs because the, the entire piece was about the Jazz. And look, I get that. Jalen Brunson was awesome. The Mavs D is legit. Um, They, they got a split without Luka. Like, they, they deserve a ton of credit. I don't want to take away from that. But the bigger story to me is that the Jazz continue to be plagued by these same damn things and continue to be undone by the same things that have undone them in playoffs past. And the two things that I wrote about, and I'll touch on quickly... The offensive trust and the and the defensive issues at the point of its action. The offensive trust, we know it's been a thing forever now uh, with, n- with not just Donovan Mitchell not passing to Rudy Gobert enough, but in general, the, just their ball handlers are not trusting Rudy Gobert when he's got a mismatch underneath. And I thought game two... Okay, Let me just say, before... He, he has not proved worthy of that right. trust. And so I've been a big Gobert a, defender, but like, this, come on, man. No, this, is, this is exactly what I was going to say. I think game two was actually... The, the, a perfect display of what's wrong with both sides of this and this offense and with the trust issues in that it showed you how, like it, it was a perfect example of them not trusting him, but also was a reminder of why they don't trust him. So look, there was a couple times, like one at one point, like Mike Conley dumped the ball to him down low to post him up against Maxi Cleaver. That's a situation where it's like, Mike Conley, you're a seasoned veteran who should know your personnel better than that. No one... I don't even think Rudy Gobert wants a post-up, okay? Like, he's not a post-up player. We know that. He doesn't dribble and, like, pass or shoot well enough out of it. Like, so there are times like that where they put him in weird positions where it's like, you're not putting this guy in a position to succeed. But there are other times where they will feed him the ball, and it should be for most average NBA big men a pretty easy bucket, and it turns into, like, a turnover or a missed shot, and then he, he, like, gets a loose ball foul going for the offensive rebound. But... I can say all that and still say, but are there times where it's literally, it looks like he's got a chance to just have to catch it and go up and they don't give him the ball? Are there times Donovan Mitchell weirdly messes up a lob pass to him? Or there are a couple times he had Spencer Dinwiddie sealed underneath Or again, we're not talking about, you know, putting him in a weird position or needing him to create anything. It's literally, if he catches the ball where he is right now and he gets on his tippy toes, he's going to score and they still avoid him. Yes. So I think it was a perfect example that game of, how there is blame to go both ways, okay? On the defensive end, I think it was a perfect example of how Rudy Gobert continues to be scapegoated for what is an inept and or indifferent group of perimeter players in front of him. Forget whether he can defend in space, forget playing him up. Like, there are few... This guy's an all-time generational defensive talent. And even he will have trouble and has trouble trying to cover for these defensive clowns. Donovan Mitchell looked like he put zero effort into defense that game and for a lot of his career. Jordan Clarkson is a terrible, like, completely inattentive defender. Mike Conley, unfortunately, just looks cooked on the defensive end. I don't think it's an effort issue. And so you've got, for the second year in a row, just like the underman Kawhi Clippers did 
to them in that second round series last year. The Luka Doncic-less Mavs, a team that scored at a rate equivalent to like the 25th or 26th best offense in the league without Doncic on the floor this year, just absolutely destroyed the Jazz on the perimeter and at the point of the attack. Gobert had to come help. The defense was put in rotation, and it ended up with a barrage of open threes. The Mavs made a franchise record 22, postseason franchise record 22 threes in that game. 17 of those made 22 threes were uncontested. That's more than any team has given up in the last 10 years, according to ESPN Stats and Info. Maxi Kleber alone had eight threes, and seven of them were uncontested. Like, it was just an abomination defensively, and it is the same thing we saw last year. They can't stop anyone at the point of attack. They've now put themselves in a situation where we thought they should win this series without Luka, and that we both gave them credit last week for being better than a lot of the doubters believe, and they could probably win this series even with Luka. Now you're in a situation where it's a best of five, even though Utah has home court advantage now, but with Doncic probably coming back in the next two games, and now I'm at the point where it's like, Luka's going to come back and just put this team out of its misery. I don't have much left to say about Utah. I think they're better than a lot of people gave them credit for this season, and some of the you know dysfunction would have you believe, but at some point, it's like you continue to be undone by the same things, and you show no signs of like growth or much personnel difference or like whatever the case may be. At some point, like you've dug your own grave, and I'm not going to sit here and cry about it. I'm certainly not going to sit here and cry about it. I mean, I feel like I've been one of the biggest jazz apologists or like jazz optimists, at least, all season, where I've like, let's see them get healthy. Like they've lost some close games that are maybe a, a little bit of bad luck baked into them. Still a good team. Still kind of believe in them. Let's just see what they can do in the playoffs. And I, I'm kind of over that after watching that game too. I think the effort, the body language, all of it was so bad. Even just from a schematic perspective, it's like, you know this is going to happen. Like, I, I kind of put this a little bit... It's mostly on Mitchell because he's getting traffic coned. And it's not even like... You know, this isn't Tyrese Maxey or Jordan Poole or one of these ridiculously explosive, you know, lightning quick first step type of guards. It's Jalen Brunson, who's super crafty, but he's not... He, he should not be dusting your point of attack defenders and getting into the paint, getting two feet in the paint at will every single time down the floor. Like that is inexcusable, man. And, you know, I, I kind of agree about Conley looking cooked, honestly, at both ends of the floor. Like, I feel like a big reason for their offensive struggles is just that like, they sort of need, like for their offense to function properly, they sort of need him to be the primary ball handler. And, he just doesn't have the juice anymore as a scorer, right? Like it, it comes down to Mitchell having to try and create everything. And given who Donovan Mitchell is, you know, the vast majority of that time, that's going to be like trying to create for himself. It just really takes the jazz offense out of its flow. So, so here's what I'll say to, to go back to what I was saying. Okay. Like Quinn Snyder at a certain point has to recognize what's happening. The perimeter defense is getting broken down. Gobert's having to slide over to help. You have to account for the corner shooter at some point. And they're just not doing that. And I, I think like it's hard to do because what you ideally want to happen is you have the defender from the wing slide down. A lot of times that was Bogdanovich and he was just really slow getting down there or he didn't even try because he, he was stuck to his assignment. And then you got to X out, which means Gobert has to be the guy who's running up above the break to challenge that wing shooter. But like that, that's got to be better than what you're giving up right now. Especially when, like, that wing shooter, Spencer Dinwiddie, or somebody like that, who's not so threatening, right? Like, I think it's interesting because basically game one went 
exactly the way that I expected it to for Dallas's offense, where they weren't stretching the Jazz out, and it made it really difficult. Like Brunson and Dinwiddie just like couldn't really get to the rim because Gobert was just there. He had a smothering defensive performance in that game. They resorted to just a ton of floaters. I think hit like seven field goals in the restricted area all game. And as good as Brunson was, he finished with 40 points in game two. He was a ridiculously good engine for that Dallas offense. The Mavs won that game because Maxi Kleba went off. And that completely changes the calculus, right? Like when they can get the pick and pops going to bust the drop, when he can stand in the corner and actually burn Gobert when he slides over to help, it totally changes how the Jazz need to defend. And they didn't adapt at all. The same thing kept happening over and over and over again. Corner three, corner three, corner three. They're not, nobody's peeling off to the corner. They're not Xing out. And by the end, it just looked like they quit. That was how it felt to me. Like they gave up and it took that game to finally push me over the edge and be like, no man, I'm done. I'm done with this jazz team. Even if they go on to win this series, which they very well might, I'm done with this team. They're, they're so dispiriting to watch at this point. Yeah, I've got nothing more to say about them. And I guess we should get the hell out of here since we're 20 minutes over. <sighs> yeah, I guess so. Um, you want me to hit you with a fan shout out? Or do do it. No, no, no. Go, go for it. Uh, Aiden Dickerson reached out to me on Instagram, uh, said he's been listening since high school, which for him meant back to episode four when Walu was still on the show, so he's always loved the insight. Uh, gives us full credit for his knowledge about the NBA when he first got into it. And uh, he said it's wild to think that uh, PTR is now five seasons running. And here's the five more. Aiden, trust me, it's, uh, it's wild for us to think about, too. This is our fifth playoffs now being covered here on Pound the Rock. Uh, fourth full season, fifth playoffs. But yes, here's the five more, which uh, is possible because of fans like Aiden and people continuing to listen and support the show. So, Aiden, thank you for supporting. Thank you for reaching out. And the usual call out to all of our listeners out there who also, like Aiden, want to see us go for five plus more years. Reach out whether it's Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U at Joseph Cacharo, email joe.wolf on at the score.com, joseph.cacharo at the score.com, Instagram, Joe underscore 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 cash. And uh, let us know how long you've been listening, what you like about the show, what you don't like about it. Maybe uh, reassure us that you enjoy when we go 20 minutes over our time span, because we're as unreliable with time limits as Doc Rivers is with a three, one lead, whatever the case may be, reach out. We'd love to hear from you and we'll get you a shout out on a future episode because uh we like giving you credit too absolutely so thank you aiden thank you to all our listeners for rocking with us for 234 episodes now i think and uh like like i said off the top uh the series we didn't get to today it's not like there aren't interesting things going on or that we're not fascinated by those series or don't want to talk about them uh we're just trying to parcel this out so we keep these relatively short. So we we are going to hit on all four of those series on Friday. So look forward to that. And uh, in the meantime, enjoy these games. We'll talk to you all soon. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the road.